We are now recording. Welcome to Adult Sunday School and Older Youth Sunday School at Grace Covenant Church. Um, you guys know who I am, but for the sake of the, of the recording, my name is Dennis, and I'm one of the. Uh, hi, hi, Andrew. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, this morning is. Uh, have you ever had one of those mornings that I'm pretty sure all of us have? It's like. Man, I gave a Sunday school training not that long ago, and I told my teachers I had to be here at 15 till, and I'm rolling in, you know, trying not to speed in the parking lot, and it's like 10 minutes till, and I got coffees. It's been one of those mornings, but I am, I am so happy to be here. Um, we are going through this semester, and Lord willing, next semester, the Gospel of Luke, okay? So this morning, we're going to be touching on things like some context, talking about who Luke is, talking about the purpose of Luke's gospel, as well as a couple of characters, Zachariah or Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, whenever I made the schedule for adult Sunday school, um, I was supposed to be touching on the birth of Jesus. And I was doing the lesson this week and I'm like, this is going to be one of those scenarios where just like my sermon was an hour and four minutes, Sunday school hour is going to go too long. I'm going to have to condense this just a little bit. Hey, Warren, how are you, brother? Um, so, thankfully, I'm teaching next week, which means, you know, it's, it's, it's an easy bridge. So this week, it's going to be all about um, Zechariah. Um, that's how I'm going to refer him. You can call him Zacharias. And Elizabeth, next week, all about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Okay. All right, before we begin, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his help this morning. Father God, we come before your throne of grace this morning, uh, privileged with the opportunity to do so as we draw near to you. As we look to you, Lord, we need you. Lord, I need your wisdom. I need your guidance, your Holy Spirit's direction. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit's um, ability that uh, that he has to guide us into truth. Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning. Lord, I pray that you would write uh, the principal truths from uh, the half of the first chapter of uh, the Gospel of Luke. Just write it on our hearts, Lord, as we... There are so many things to go over, so many things to touch on. Lord, I pray that uh, that um, our my GCC family would be encouraged. Lord, I pray there would be... Um, uh, sin to repent of this morning. I pray that there would be um, honor and glory that would just uh, manifest itself among our body, giving you praise and glory because, Lord, you have given us so much grace. Lord, uh, we love you. We thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning and to open up your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I need four readers. And uh, just, just raise your hands for me. I, I need four. Some of the passages are shorter. Some of the passages are longer. Mike, thank you, sir. I got you reading Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Reader number 2. Thank you, Brian. I got you reading Luke 1, 5 through 7. Third reader. Third reader. Jason, thank you, sir. And Courtney, 
Jason, I got you reading Luke 1, 8 through 17. Luke 1, 8 through 17. Courtney, out of my peripheral, I got you reading Luke 1, 18 through 25. And I'm going to write these down because I think one of the last times I taught adult Sunday school, I called Jane's name like five times and it was never her time to read until the very last. So I'm writing it down because I'm a very forgetful person. So, before we have Mike, before you read verses 1 through 4, let's talk about this introduction and let's set some context. So, the period that we are about to highlight, again, this is before the birth of Christ, right? This is where we start. This period that we are about to highlight, and this is going to be your first blank, is known as the intertestamental uh, era. Intertestamental era. We're going to dive in a little bit about what that means. This was the time, around 400 years, Nathaniel, thank you so much, brother, for handing those out, when God was silent. It's also known as the silent years. The Old Testament, if you remember, ended with Malachi. There was no prophet called. No prophet who spoke on behalf of God. And this experientially was a hard time for Israel. I want you to listen to the way Malachi, and you can go there if you'd like, in chapter 4, verse 2, how he ends his uh, his book, his his letter, what, what the Lord had given him. And this is very interesting, and to me very encouraging. He goes, the promise of the son, S-U-N, of righteousness with healing in its wings. The promise of the son, S-U-N, of righteousness with healing in its wings. The light of the world would come. The Messiah would put an end to this darkness. And again, it was considered darkness because 400 years had gone by with no word from God at all. No light whatsoever. Now we're going to fast forward just for a second. Think about Malachi 4.2, the son of righteousness with healing in its wings. It's a promise that the Messiah would be coming to Luke 178. Luke 178 is Zechariah's prophecy. This This is what I'm going to get into next week. This is what he says. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, as you win, sunrise shall visit us from on high. This is another reference to the Messiah. This is about Christ, what Zechariah is saying. What God has promised, this is why it's exciting and interesting and encouraging. What God has promised through the mouth of Malachi was still going to happen. Okay? So again, 400 years of darkness. There's hope, and this is what the people of Israel, this is what God's people are holding on to. We know that the Messiah is coming. Where is he? God has been silent. God, we want to hear from you, please. The Gospel of Luke belongs to what we call the synoptic Gospels, along with Matthew and Mark. Syn, S-Y-N, stands for together. It means together. Optic means to see. Very good. 
So they see these gospels, see together, or they tell the same story. Now, there are differences in the synoptics, um, you know, with details of each story, right? But by and large, they tell the same story of Christ. How do we know that Luke wrote his gospel? Both Luke, Gospel of Luke and Acts, doesn't say, you know, how Paul in his epistles, how he would start out his letter by basically saying, hey, I wrote this. Luke didn't do that in, in, in the third gospel or in the book of Acts. So how do we know? Well, we know first that they were written by the same author, partly because they were addressed to the same person, Theophilus. Okay? And not only that, we know that they were addressed to the same person, like, like, hey, this is my first letter to you, or my second letter to you, this is my second letter to you, right? We know that they were addressed to the same person. We know that they, it was one author because, and I'm no Greek scholar, but just from my research from this lesson, the style um, of Greek that was in Luke matches that of what's in Acts, and it's very advanced, okay? Uh, most times, if, you would, if you're learning Greek, you probably get something called uh, Bill Mounces, I think that's his name, Greek handbook. Andrew's shaking his head, yes, that is good. And I have this, and I remember picking it up for a time. I had my flashcards, and I'm like, man, I'm going to town. I'm going to learn Greek. It lasted for a short time because it is, like, super hard, and I just give up. So, again, but, but, but I started with the book of John, right? And this is how most people start, book of John, book of Mark. No one starts learning Greek from the book, the Gospel of Luke. Nobody. You're like crazy, super smart, and a glutton for punishment if that's where you start at. So, again, the Greek from Luke and Acts both match. In the Gospel of Luke, another way that we know it's, it's pointing more towards Luke is because um, it talks about medical matters to a far more degree than other Gospels do. For instance, in Luke 4.38, we can read that Simon Peter's mother-in-law suffered from a high fever. Right? We know what that stuff is. We know what a fever is. We can, we've had fevers. We can diagnose whenever our kids have fever, why we have a thermometer, or we, we do this, or, or what have you. Right? Come to me. Let me feel your head. Yeah, baby, you're warm. Let me give you some, uh, some children's Motrin. Or not. Tough it out. Right? So, so there is like a, an awareness that the author... Some peppermint oil. There's a, the author had an awareness of medical matters. Okay, In Luke 14, 2, the author describes a man's body that was swollen with fluid. So these two details, and there are, there are some others, it would indicate that the person who authored the Gospel of Luke had an eye for medical matters. And this is like making more sense because in Colossians 4, 14, uh, Paul says that Luke was a traveling companion of his and refers to him as Luke, the beloved physician, right? So he goes, Luke, the beloved physician greets you. So Luke had a higher education, uh, an education and knowledge of medical matters. That would kind of make sense with the way that he wrote, right? This guy was brilliant. And 
internally speaking, the stuff that we just talked about before, it, it points to Luke. Let's talk about what external evidence looks like. Externally, the early church supports Luke and authorship as well. Irenaeus, a second century church father, wrote this. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in the book of gospel preached by him. Again, Irenaeus was of the persuasion that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. Over the next two, next two centuries, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, um, Eusebius, Jerome, they all attest to Luke having written the third gospel. Now, this doesn't prove that Luke wrote the gospel, but the fact that these early church fathers were affirming it, they unanimously, unanimously believe that he did, that's important for us to know. The author who wrote the third gospel was not an eyewitness. Okay, we know that by reading Luke 1-2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some past to write an orderly account. So the author of Luke, the gospel, the author of the third gospel, wasn't an eyewitness. Luke was also not an eyewitness. Again, this is more evidence pointing to him. So compiling all this information that we have before us, Luke, the physician co-worker with Apostle Paul, is the only viable candidate for authorship of his two-volume work known as Luke-Acts, according to most Christian scholars. And because Luke traveled with Paul, this gospel received as having apostolic endorsement, right? Apostolic endorsement. Many books were written. Why were they included or not included in the canon? And that's, that's a whole other discussion. And this third gospel, according to Luke, was. It's because Luke was a traveling in, uh, worker in the gospel with Paul. Therefore, because of that, there is apostolic endorsement and authority that goes along with it. It's trustworthy, okay? So let's talk about structure very, very, very briefly. So we're going to talk about the Gospel of Luke. It can be divided into some categories, chronological order, geographical order. For this first semester, we're going to be focusing on Jesus' birth to the time of his public ministry. Dramatically speaking, this first semester was the height of his popularity. Everybody loved Jesus at this point. There was no, um, there was no contention. There was no opposition, no rejection. That doesn't come until much later. Geographically, geographically speaking, this first semester will be taking place around Galilee. And we know that Christ was resolute in his mission, which was the cross, right? So as we go along the Gospel of Luke, it's going to be in Galilee. Then he's going to be traveling towards Jerusalem with it culminating in Jerusalem. Of course, where Jesus will lose his life on the cross and then rise again from the grave. The purpose of the third gospel. Finally, Michael, would you read for us the first four verses, please? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Very good. Thank you, sir. So, 
Luke opens his gospel by sharing the purpose of his gospel in 3 and 4. Right? We know God's greater scheme, his greater plan, the purpose of including this in the canon, God's word. But Luke also had a purpose, an intention, a motivation for writing this third gospel. It seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So, by the way, Theophilus means lover of God. Some people believe that this was an actual person. Some scholars believe this was like a code word for Christians, right? Like Paul was right, or I'm sorry, Luke was writing to a group of Christians um, specifically, not us, right? We're, it is for us, but it wasn't written to us. Uh, but some people are like, no, it was written to an actual guy named Theophilus. No, it's code word for lovers of God, which is believers, right? However you take it. Um, it was written to the church, and it, it is for our good. So, according to verses 3 and 4, Luke intended to provide believers certainty. That's one of your blanks there. Certainty. And maybe a younger person can a- ask this question that I'm about to ask now. How can we have certainty that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning? How can we have certainty that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning? And you can just say it. I don't think there's any young people in here. Oh, yeah, there are. I'm I'm looking at many of them. I have young in my name. (laughs) (laughs) Historical evidence. Historical evidence based upon what happened Yesterday. yesterday, right? Very good. So... That's wonderful, uh, Brian and Annie. So we have certainty that the sun is going to rise tomorrow because it rose today and it rose yesterday and, you know, for many years before that. So we look to historical evidence. We look to past events that the sun has risen every morning since creation in my own life. This certainty is based upon the past. So a question, and a young person can answer this one too, Luke's wanting his readers to have certainty about the things that they, um, concerning the things they have been taught about Christ, right? Can we have certainty in matters of faith and religion? Why? Why can we have certainty in matters of faith and religion? The atheists would disagree with that statement. They can't have any certainty. Um, why can we have certainty? Very good. Our God doesn't change. I love that, Brittany. Very good. Anybody historically else? reliable. He, he is historically reliable. Very good. Not only God is, but his word is as well. Any other answers? How can we have certainty? Annie, I see you, want, I see you stirring. Well, Luke wasn't an eyewitness. Why do we have to be? Okay, Luke wasn't an eyewitness. Why do we have to be? That's good. Right? Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. This was truth. Right? Luke wasn't an eyewitness, yet he had certainty. So do we have to have do we have to be eyewitnesses to be certain? The answer is no. Okay? So what Luke is referring to where he says we have certainty about the Christian faith because what has been 
accomplished or fulfilled. That may be a blank. So how can we be certain about matters of faith and religion? Because what's been accomplished among us? Similarly to the sun rising, we have certainty about the Christian faith because what has been accomplished or fulfilled. Of course, I'm referring to the Old Testament promises. Think about the Old Testament promises made. New Testament promises revealed or promises kept, right? Who can tell me what the proto-euangelium, what, 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 what happens in that account in Genesis? Genesis 3.15. Can someone give me a summation of what promise is given there? Very good. And how, Nathaniel, did we see that fulfilled? <clears throat> on the cross. Very good. Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross and also by rising from the grave. There is victory there. In Genesis 3.15, we can read about this victory that the seed of the woman would give a final death blow to death. Right to the head of the serpent. We see this, of course, in Jesus Christ. Very good. So, reader number two. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Very good. Thank you, Brian. So, Luke picks up his story about God's plan and fulfillment in Christ with a mention of two characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and their son, John. Now, he is the only one that picks up right here, Luke is. Why is that? And why is it so important that he has this connection with John the Baptist? We're going to get into that in just a minute. But Zacharias or Zachariah means God has remembered again. I've said it many times. Our default position is to forget. Um, as soon as the memory of a previous blessing, you know, fades, it's like we become disgruntled, right? It's hard for us to remember um, what God has done for us. This is why we rehearse the Lord's Supper each and every Lord's Day, it helps us remember again. So our default position, again, is to forget God, however, never does. That is a good thing, but if you don't know the Lord, that can be a very dangerous and fearful thing. So Zechariah, or Zacharias, was a priest. And to be a priest in those days was a way to be honored. It was a way to be honored. It was honored. They were representatives of God. They went into the temple, they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, they pronounced blessings, they were servants of the temple, they were also butchers, right? How were they butchers? What, what happened in those days? Sacrifices. sacrifices, the offerings, very good. So they were butchers, essentially, who did all the sacrificing of the animals for the people. They also interpreted the scriptures, and they also taught the scriptures. Elizabeth was one of the daughters of Aaron. She was a um, uh, Aaron, uh, one of the uh, descendants of Aaron the priest. In the text, in 1.6, as Brian just read, it says they were both righteous 
before God and blameless. So does this mean that they lived a perfect life? Does this passage that they were righteous or blameless, does it negate the passage that says in Psalms and Paul um, echoes again in Romans that there are none who are righteous, no, not one? No, it doesn't. So this is a reference to their position before God. A position being both justified, declared not guilty, they were both believers. Okay? If they were both believers, what were they believers in or of? Again, this was before Christ was born. What were they believers of? What saved them? Has it always been faith? Faith in what? The promise. The promised one, the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Very good. They were believers in the promise of a coming Messiah. Remember Abraham in the, in the promises of God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It also talks about Noah being a righteous man without the coming. That's right. Hebrews, right? We just went through that sermon. Pastor Dole did not too long ago. So Elizabeth, as we are told, was barren. Not only was she barren, but they were advanced in years. Sarah was barren. Hannah was barren. Samson's mother was barren. This is a common theme in scripture, is it not? Now, it's hard for us to understand this day and age just how much disgrace and reproach that women in these days had by being barren. Um, Rachel cried out to Jacob in Genesis 31, give me children or I'll die. Very interesting. As well as in 3023, excuse me, whenever she gave birth to Joseph, she said, God has taken away my disgrace. So to be a mother was an honor back then, as it is now. To be without children back then, however, was a disgrace. So many probably thought that Elizabeth and Zacharias had perhaps dishonored, disobeyed God in some ways. And this is why God hasn't given them any children. Surely, whenever they would walk about out in the community, they would see other families with children, right? Other families would see them without children. And again, they'd be like, there's some secret sin that's going on in their lives. And this is why God is punishing them. Again, that can't be the case. Why is that? The text says they were righteous. They were blameless. So God wasn't, even though, as Pastor Joel, I believe today is going to be speaking about the heavy hand of discipline of the Lord, that's not, necess not necessarily why it says they were barren. It was according to the plan of God that they would be barren, however. God disciplines those he loves. We know that. But there was no secret sin. Again, they were blameless and they walked in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord. Reader number three, please. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. 
But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you should call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient, uh, to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Thank you, Jason. So, as we said a little bit ago, Zacharias was a part of these uh, this division of priests. Um, it's, it's very interesting um, as, as we dive into exactly, you know, not only what the priests did, but this specific division, okay? There were 24 divisions of these priests, and we're told that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the temple to burn incense and to pray while the sacrifice was being made. Now, this was something that was done morning and evening, okay? Morning and evening. Others remained outside, and they prayed. Fourteen priests were chosen for this duty for the year. Fourteen, okay? I said there were 24 divisions, okay? So think about 24 divisions. Fourteen priests were chosen for the year. That must mean that these divisions just don't have very many priests. No, there were 18,000 priests total in these 24 divisions. And only 14 got to do it for the year. Is it likely that many probably wouldn't get to have this honor of burning incense, going inside and praying? Absolutely. Okay? It was a huge honor, a huge opportunity. Not everyone who was a priest got to do this. Zechariah wasn't and would not have been chosen easily unless it was for the plan of God. Some priests were never given this opportunity. And we're told that it's done by casting lots. So what is casting lots? Well, it's a divine rolling of the dice, if you will, a drawing your name from the hat, dependent upon God's sovereignty for whatever the outcome, right? It's not hard to find biblical examples of people casting lots for decision-making, right? We, the, the Holy Land was parceled out by sacred lots, according to Joshua. Saul, as uh, Joel preached on a couple of years ago, I believe, in 1 Samuel 10, Saul was chosen by lots. Jonah went overboard by them casting lots in the same way. So why lots, if God is sovereign over all things, and he over, then he oversees the rolling of the dice and the name being drawn from the hat? Why don't we cast lots today? We have planning center. <laughs> That's good. We have planning center, he said. That's good. So why, yeah. why, why don't we cast lots today? Why don't we need to? We already know what the will of God is. We know what the will of God is here because we have his word. What else do we have indwelling us? 
the Holy Spirit. Very good. So this is why we don't cast lots. Okay? So it was according to the divine plan that Zechariah would be chosen for, for that role. He won the divine lottery. Um, the angel, we are told, is Gabriel in verse 8. He stands in the presence of God according to verse 18. There's only two angels ever mentioned in Scripture. Anybody know what they are besides Gabriel? Michael. And uh, uh, we have Michael and we have Gabriel. Angels are God's messengers. They're scary messengers, but they're God's messengers that usually echo the warning to or the encouragement to not be afraid. They act as God's heralds. They make the announcement from the very throne of God. So this was something huge because this was the first time that God had spoken on behalf of somebody else in how many years? 400 years. This was a big deal. Okay, Gabriel going to Zechariah inside the temple that God sovereignly made happen through the decision making of casting lots. So, if God hasn't spoken in 400 years, I would imagine there was a lot of desperation. Again, it was a time of darkness, not only, and whenever I mean darkness, I mean like spiritual darkness, right? Um, I, I, I can imagine that whenever people prayed, since God was silent, they probably often felt like it was ricocheted off of heaven. Um, and we're told here in this text that was just read by Jason that Gabriel said that God has heard your prayers. So whenever it seems that God isn't doing anything, that God is silent, God is still there. He is still on his throne. He is still orchestrating. He is still working things on our behalf. He is still listening to our prayers. And I kind of wonder if Zachariah and Elizabeth were like, Lord, we, we love you. We, we know you. You know us. We, I can't imagine them saying, we walk blameless in your ways. But Lord, we, we obey your commandments. And yet we still don't have a child. <coughs> and this is a huge reproach. And this is a disgrace among the people. Lord, why don't you hear us? Why don't you answer us? And then we're told that those prayers weren't bouncing or ricocheting off heaven's doors. But that God heard and I found this one quote, it was actually a tweet by John Piper, that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and we are probably only aware of three of them, right? That is so good. So, likewise, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were living their life, they were advancing in years, they were without child, they prayed for a child, completely unaware of what God was doing, yet God still heard their prayers. Not only did he hear their prayers, but he would answer their prayers by giving them a son, John. So, as I said a minute ago, or 15 minutes ago, why does Luke link Jesus in John? And he's the only one that does this. I, I think it's important that we understand this, and I believe there's even a blank for you there. So Luke gives a convincing argument that according to the plan of God, Jesus is the Messiah. 
with John the Baptist as the forerunner who came to identify the Messiah. It's obvious that Luke has this concern. He wants to link these two guys together. Why is that? Well, remember, God is breaking his silence whenever he spoke to Zechariah. When God says in verse 17, speaking about John the Baptist, he will go before him in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is exactly, very interestingly, where God left off 400 years ago. You can turn there in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. We read this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. So where God left off in Malachi, 400 years later, we have Luke showing the connection and the linking between Jesus and John the Baptist. There was someone who would come in the spirit of Elijah who would be a forerunner to the Messiah. We have John the Baptist, a prophecy that was given that he would be born. This is what he would do. What would he do? He would be a forerunner to the Messiah. Like this is an awesome connection that Luke is saying, look what God has done. Not only has he promised a Messiah, but he promised someone who would be the forerunner who would prepare the people for the Lord. Dennis, on a side note, it also goes to do a nice job of testifying for the unborn child that they have a soul, they are a person. Oh, sure. Because in a oh, we could go many, we could dive in deeper. Absolutely, make a case for that. You know, whenever, uh, you know, the baby leapt in, in the womb, right? That, if I, if I could hit every point, we would be here for a few hours, but that's good, Lisa. Thank you for bringing that up. And we will finish very quickly now with Courtney. All right. Read fast. Read fast, okay. Just kidding. I'll try. And Zachariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, what does Zechariah do whenever Gabriel tells him this news? Well... It's very interesting because he goes, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. There is some doubt in his response to this scary angel who is speaking on behalf of God, right? And I, and, I, and I wonder how often his prayers that were heard by God were laced with unbelief as they got older and older and older and advanced and advanced in years. You know, how old was Sarah whenever she gave birth? 
How often does that happen today? There will probably be a little bit of unbelief in my voice too, in my prayers, right? So, again, what we can take away from this, when our eyes are on our problems, whenever we think about, as far as they're concerned, we are old, Lord, we are without kids, we have prayed for this for so long, you have either not heard or you have not answered, it's very frequent that our eyes will go from being fixed on Christ or being fixed on the Lord to being fixed on our problems. We don't remember God's word. We don't remember his promises. We don't remember how they apply to us. I'm pretty sure that Zachariah remembered Hannah, remembered Sarah, remembered Samson's mother. Zechariah, being a priest who taught people the word of God, knew of these stories that God answered their prayers and had children in their old age. And yet there was still unbelief in his voice. He wanted more proof. As a result, Gabriel made him mute, didn't allow him to speak. He probably came out of the temple there whenever his service was done, speaking in some form of sign language. Again, it wasn't completely understood. We, are, we aren't told. His sign language doesn't land, but his service ends at the temple and they went home and despite Zachariah's faithlessness it says what Courtney just said after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden a lot of people would like to know why she kept herself hidden for five months if this is something that you've been praying for for a long time surely you would go out in the streets and be like look look look, look what he did right but I would like to think that for those five months that, that she stayed inside and she just praised God, right? This is something that she had prayed for for a long time. They had both prayed for for a long time. For five months, she stayed hidden. And again, I'm pretty sure it's because it was just personal time with the Lord, reflecting and worshiping and praising. So prayers, many prayers, even coupled with tears were answered. God's faithfulness in this story is on full display. What we can take away again, we forget God doesn't. Our prayers are often laced with unbelief, yet the Lord still hears. When it feels like your prayers are not heard, they aren't hitting any kind of ceiling. They are being received. When it feels like nothing is happening, time is wasted, afflictions linger on, God may be aloof. He is working in many, many, many ways on, in your life, on your behalf, and you don't even realize it. And then that last question is just for you to reflect upon. How can you praise God right now for some unfulfilled promise or, uh, or for some aspect of his work in the world that you don't quite understand? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the time this morning. Lord, we thank you for what you have showed us in your word. Lord, you don't forget, Lord, you keep your promises, you answer, Lord, you are faithful whenever we are faithless, Lord, you are working even whenever it feels like and seems like you aren't. You hear our prayers, Lord, and we thank you for not only hearing, but answering them as well. Lord, I pray for corporate worship this morning. Lord, may you be glorified in, uh, not only in our thoughts, but also through the worship of song and the preaching of God's word. We love you. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.